Hey, this is Dan Messick, and you're listening to Upstream, a Skeena Wild podcast. Upstream will explore the people, culture, science, and of course the salmon from all across the Skeena watershed. Northwest BC is filled with diverse voices, communities, and economies that rely on a healthy watershed. So we'll dive into the work being done every day on the ground to ensure our way of life and salmon have a future and that the Skeena stays wild. This is episode five, The Babeen. The Babeen River is basically at the end of the line. So before uh, the Babeen River, the Babeen River meets up with the Skeena uh, towards uh, the Kassan area, I believe. And when you hit, come upriver from the Kassan area, you hit the Babine River, and there are two sections, so the lower Babine River and the upper Babine River. Then you hit Nilkitko Lake, which is a very small, shallow lake, and then a little bit more of the Babine River, and then you hit Babine Lake. So if you were to drive, it would be um, probably an hour and a half drive from Smithers. I think the, one of the most important points is, like, you know, for fish along the Skeena, we're at the end of the line. So this is where, you know... Over 93% of the uh, Skeena sockeye salmon are born and then uh, return, spawn, and die and start that cycle of life over again. So we're at the end of the line. The Babine River is one of the most iconic rivers in northwest BC. It isn't a particularly long river at just over 97 kilometers in length, but it contains the stories of legends. Known around the world for its famed rainbow trout and steelhead runs, with some of the largest specimens ever recorded, the Babine is still considered one of the last unspoiled and pristine rivers in BC, despite the upper reaches of the river being hit hard by logging over the past decade. As one of the major tributaries of the Skeena River, the Babine River Corridor Provincial Park was established in 1999, protecting about 15,000 hectares of territory and is home to one of the largest concentrations of grizzly bears in North America, which is why it is also known as the River of Grizzlies. It cannot be overstated how important the Babine system is to the overall health of the Skeena watershed and especially Skeena sockeye. As mentioned, more than 90% of Skeena sockeye begin their life in Babine Lake, one of the largest populations of sockeye throughout the entire Skeena watershed. But despite its prominence in Mystique as a major salmon-bearing river, the Babine is under constant pressures from climate change, logging, and derelict mines. Perhaps that's why Donna McIntyre, a member of Lake Babine Nation and the head of the LBN Fisheries Program, has dedicated most of her life to ensure the survival and protection of one of the most celebrated salmon rivers in the Skeena watershed. I'm Donna McIntyre. I am a member from Lake Babine Nation. I am Jasak Buziwani, which means in my language, I am from the Grouse Clan. I live in Smithers, British Columbia. I am the director of Lake Baby Nation Fisheries Program. I have been the director for the program since approximately 2011. Previous to this was a, um, a hairdresser, high school dropout, you name it. I had an interest in fish and a passion for fish. So I went back to school and I did my Bachelor of Science at UNBC to obtain a, a degree in natural resource management, wildlife and fisheries. 
Donna, it's so great that we could check in and connect like this uh, and find out what's going on on your end of things. I know that you've been working with Lake Babine Nation's fishery program for some time now, but tell me a little bit about how did you originally get involved with the LBN fisheries program? Well, actually, it's quite interesting. There was a Department of Fisheries and Oceans uh, conservation officer, like a, I call them fish cops, probably not the technical term, but I was a hairdresser and I was cutting his hair and I became interested in fish and the stories that he used to tell me when I used to cut his hair. So that made me very interested in fish. So thus I went to school and um, obtained a degree and wanted to come work for my nation because I had this great passion for fish because of course we all love fish and it feeds our bodies and our souls and it's so culturally important to the Lake Baby Nation people and I really wanted to be able to help my own nation. Amazing. I guess, Donna, what was, if you can remember, what was your first interaction experience with, with salmon or, you know, with any lake fish? Oh, well, I, I grew up in Prince Rupert, but spent, you know, a lot of time in Fort Bebby, and that's where my family is from. So basically, my first experiences with fish was from, you know, like knee-high to a grasshopper, where my job, we all worked together and harvested fish each year so that we had a supply for winter and also for our potlatches and as gifts and things like that. So basically, I was, you start off as a small child and you are the one that does the washing of the fish. And then you move up and you move up until finally you practice on rainbow trout and things like that. But they make you catch it yourself so that, you know, you do not... Um, um, basically, you know, demolish a salmon. So my first experiences with working with fish was basically us collecting food fish for the smokehouse. Oh, wow. And I, you know, and I've talked to many others over the years uh, about, you know, the, the cultural side of, of salmon, the significance to, to First Nations people, uh, but also the stories that are told. And, you know, oftentimes I'm told that, you know, when the when the smokehouse is full or when the, the salmon fish are being prepared to be put in the smokehouse, there's a lot of stories that are told around the smokehouse to the younger generation. What, what do you remember of that? Uh, most of it was fish handling. So basically our traditional laws in how we handle fish. So, you know, you're not to handle them roughly. You're not to waste anything. You know, my biggest memory was, you know, living out in Fort Babine, you know, it was two and a half hours away at that time from the nearest grocery store, which was Smithers. And we, we had to preserve our, I'm going to say, Western foods to, and when the salmon came, we were able to eat as much as we wanted. And I recall being able to fry up the hearts and it was all you could eat like a smorgasbord with the roe and with the salmon heart. So basically fish handling was my biggest lesson when I was working with our people because um, within my family, at least in LBN, we weren't allowed to tell too many of the stories until all of the work was done. So our berries were harvested, our fish was ready, our medicinal plants were done, and you know what have you, our moose was dried, it was all packaged and ready to go. So the storytelling came in October mid-October to the end of October when all of the work was done. So basically, while we were fish harvesting, the stories would be, you know, about great-grandma who, you know, 
was ice fishing and, you know, caught a big char. Stories like that. And then, of course, traditional law about the way we handle fish and how we don't waste any part of the fish. Yeah, no, of course. Um, and, and that's what, you know, that's one of the things that seems to be right across, you know, all indigenous nations is that uh, every part of the fish is used, um, even, you know, to the point where, you know, some of the some of the, the, the leftovers are, you know, given to the to the dogs. It's just every piece of it is utilized. Um, I guess, you know, looking at that and hearing the stories and growing up in, in that immersed in that culture you know, how did that really kind of set you on this path um, with the work that you do now with the LBN Fisheries Program? I, I think the, when I seen the scarcity of when I was a young lady, young girl, and, and you know, I used to lay on the bow of the boat, you know, on the lake and going down the Babine River, and it used to be wall-to-wall. And when I went back as a young lady, not seeing that, I really wanted to make sure that I was able to do my part to help preserve and conserve and rebuild our stocks that appeared at my time or at that time to be dwindling because it would be, what I seen in the river was so much different as a young girl to becoming a young lady. Um, maybe let's let's you know start there. Uh, what do you remember? seeing uh, with the abundance in your early days versus now after, you know, as you mentioned, almost 10 years as the fisheries manager with LBN Fisheries. So what are some of the changes that you've seen over these years? Uh, the major changes that we've seen through the Lake Baby Nation Fisheries Program is our wild stocks that have dwindled. So, you know, basically most everybody knows that we have, you know, artificial spawning channels. We have the Fulton, which is actually the biggest in the world. And then we have the Fulton, or Pinkett spawning channels. And, you know, the management of them is uh, the way um, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans manages them. They don't go uh, stock by stock. They manage them as an aggregate. So one of the things that we've seen, which is very scary, from the time that I first started in the fisheries program, I was a stream walker and did stream enumerations. So when I look at the numbers today, I'll give you an example of, say, Five Mile Creek. You know, that was a very small tributary that had anywhere from, you know, 500 to 1,500 wild sockeye salmon. Uh, in the last, I'd say, 10 years, we're lucky if we get 10. So that's quite a, quite a drastic, you know, decline um, you know, especially in, in the last 10 years, it's only been a decade that we've really started to see this major decline. And, and I'm sure you're aware, you know, there's, there's some work that has been going on. Uh, Michael Price, who is, who is the Skeena Wild Science Director, has, has done some, some work analyzing the scales of 100-year-old uh, sockeye scales and trying to determine you know, what the abundance look like, but also the diversity of, of, of the genetics. And, and it looks like, you know, Lake Babine is a big part of this right now. Um, you know, what are you seeing now in terms of these runs coming back? Um, and tell me a little bit about the work that you do with the fence, because that kind of plays a, a pretty pivotal role. We see, you know, some fish, the, the sockeye that come up um, the Skeena River, uh, the Thai test fishery kind of does an analysis um, to get, determine what the escapement is or, or what the numbers look like. But then also the numbers kind of add up once they get to the, the fish weir up at Babine. So tell me a little bit about that work. 
Yeah, I think the work that uh, Michael Price and Skeena Wild Conservation Trust are doing is amazing because, as you know, most First Nations, uh, you know, the majority of my funding comes from AFS. So that's the Aboriginal fishery strategy that started in 1992. And the funds that Lake Baby Nation receives are the same. So having, you know, collaborations with, uh, you know, NGOs like Skin and Wild Conservation Trust and having Michael do his work is amazing to be able to help the Lake Bebe Nation, you know, figure out where we are and the ancient scales. I just like, oh, my goodness, that's so amazing. So one of the things that we have noticed is the the uh, upper and lower Babine River wild stalks were the uh, made up. I think it was probably uh, about it was quite a huge percentage. I'm going to say I want to be safe and say well over 80% because we also had the small tributaries before the artificial spawning channels were put in. Now those two stocks that fed everybody, the commercial fishermen, downriver First Nations, sports fishermen, absolutely everybody, those numbers are in dire straits right now. So one of the things that uh, we do at the Lake Baby Nation uh, Fish Weir, which uh, we call the Gonzi, uh, is uh, we're able to uh, basically look at the numbers and, and it, it is a great management tool for all Skeena First Nations, for the Department of Fisheries, for all management purposes. So basically we all know that the TAI is an estimate of what is coming up the Skeena. But what is the great thing about the fence is that we're able to kind of ground truth it So there are times, you know, in years where we thought, okay, did we have another Babine River slide? Where are the fish? They are not returning to the fence. But, you know, low water, high temps can affect that. So basically the fence is a great uh, ground-truthing thing. We're not able to – we we count every fish while we're open, but we are not open to – at the fence to be able to count, like, you know, all of the coho and all of the Chinook. We know the Chinook really hate barriers, but we do the best we can with the contract that we get with the operation of the uh, Babine River Weir. Um, How does that work help – you, uh, the fisheries program, LBN, and, you know, as well as, as DFO, how does that help in the management uh, of the stocks, given the fact that we are seeing some very challenging uh, conditions for salmon and, and, as you mentioned earlier, some dwindling numbers? Well, I think the biggest thing is being able to ground truth it from the Thai test fishery and then being able to archive all of that data so we, we're able to look at you know are the fish getting smaller like we don't weigh them but you know that's something that we would like to start doing but you know that would take another body to be able to do that and as we all know funding is scarce so you know, we also have um, crews, and I normally go out myself too, except for last year due to COVID, go out. And, and because I've been around so long, I normally count and look at fish condition. We can look at, you know, and, and have the crews monitor when there are, um, you know, lots of gillnet marks or, you know, many predator marks. And, you know, in high water, you know, the fish get all bunged up and things like that. So I would think that with management, all of those things, you know, once we collect all the information and be able to write a report, we haven't had the funding to do that yet. But if we do, we're able to look back and say, well, you know, all of a sudden there's many more males or, um, you know, in high water years, we we're, we shouldn't be harvesting, um, you know, in anywhere 
if, uh, you know, the fish are in jeopardy. If you like what you're hearing and want to hear more about the Skeno watershed, salmon, science, and how communities are working together to ensure a future for all the creatures that call the Skeno home, then download the Upstream podcast. Check us out at skenowild.org or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the show. Skeno salmon that return to the Babine face increasing pressures. As smolts, babine salmon begin a long journey out to the ocean every spring. If they survive long enough to become juveniles, their chances of survival increase. But swimming around the Pacific Ocean with increased predation, warming waters, and continued pressures from fishing, navigating their way back to whence they came is no small task. If they do eventually return to Lake Babine to spawn for the next generation, the threats don't end there. In fact, one of the major potential impacts to Babine salmon is right in the middle of the lake. Two derelict mines have been a standing issue for more than 40 years. The Bell and Grand Isle mines remain a big question mark in terms of their impact to Babine salmon. The mines have permits granted by the provincial government to discharge effluent from the mines tailing ponds into the lake. In 2020, Skeena Wild's science director Mike Price and mines researcher Adrian Birchtold, in partnership with LBN Fisheries, initiated a scientific review of the discharge being released into Lake Babine, the findings of which are more than a bit concerning. It has become the legacy of metal mines on Babine Lake. Babine Lake, for one, is one of the largest, if not the largest, freshwater lakes in British Columbia, but uh, important in the Skeena uh, for its abundance of sockeye salmon. Some 30 populations spawn around the lake and tributaries around the lake, but utilize the lake as nursery habitat where they'll rear for um, one year, almost exclusively. A few fish in a very small proportion will stay for an extra year. With regards to the Skeena, you know, they're um, historically, the uh, Babine Lake, as this system, uh, produced some 70% of all sockeye salmon that, um, of those fish that returned to the Skeena. Now it's 90 to 95%. So this is really the uh, sockeye salmon engine of the Skeena watershed. Bell and Grinnell mines both were large copper producing mines. Um, they've been closed for a few decades now. When they were operational, it was found through numerous assessments that they had negative impacts to Babine Lake, which is an important lake for, particularly for sockeye salmon. We're standing on the edge of uh, the pit of one of two copper mines uh, that um, once extracted ore, primarily copper. Uh, on the shore of Babine Lake and in fact one of the things that struck me as we approached was the proximity to the lake so we're literally a uh, hundred or a few hundred meters from the shore of Babine Lake so yeah this is the main pit where they extracted the ore it's now um, what many would consider a tailings pond it's where that mine impacted water uh, is stored and as uh, when this pit eventually fills, it will need to um, be actively discharged and as we may see at the Bell Mine where the pit has filled up, there's active discharge. Though these mines have been closed for quite a while, they're still continuing to discharge um, impacted water into the lake and so 
our goal was to look through recent um, aquatic monitoring that's being performed in Babine Lake just to get a sense of if there are any sort of red flags in the monitoring information that shows that there are ongoing negative impacts. So that's what we started with. And then sort of through that process, we noticed that there are actually quite a few noticeable gaps in the ways that the mine's discharges into the lake are regulated. And also in terms of um, how the mining company monitors the sort of state of Babine Lake. We've noticed that a lot of the permits issued by the BC government to Bell and Grand Isle Mines just simply aren't really thorough or stringent enough. So for example, um, Grand Isle Mine has multiple points on the mine site that discharge contaminated water into the lake. Um, and none of those sites have any limits assigned uh, by the government in terms of the volume that's allowed to enter the lake or the quality of that discharge. So there's no limit to how much copper, for example, or selenium or sulfate can be in that discharge. We also found that Bell Mine, though it does have permits um, that, that do assign some limits to the volume and the quality of the discharge, the limits that the government places on the quality of that discharge is like well, well above um, levels that are known based on scientific information to cause um, lots of negative effects to the aquatic environment and especially salmon. For uh, fishes and particularly salmonids, we know that even low concentrations, so these are concentrations that are even below uh, Canada's water quality guidelines, right? These are guidelines that are set up to protect uh, aquatic communities, in, including salmon. We know that concentrations of copper even lower than these guidelines can impair a fish's sense of smell, so their ability to even smell predators when they're near, and uh, that can increase their mortality rate, so increase the probability of dying. Babine Lake in and of itself is important um, for you know, rearing habitat, for sockeye salmon. Salmon, obviously, a very important resource for our province, both culturally and economically. But I would say more so that what's important about this research is, is that these two mines are not unique. There are hundreds of mines um, in the province, and many of them if not all, are sort of in the same situation that the Bell and Grand Isle mines are, where they're being kind of semi-poorly regulated. They're continuing to discharge water into nearby rivers, creeks, lakes. Our research really shows like how long-lasting the impacts of these mines are, because these discharges go on for decades and decades after the mine closes, and how the sort of inadequate monitoring and, and regulation of them can result in really negative impacts to um, the aquatic environment, running the risk of going completely unnoticed and unmanaged. It's clear that to better understand the impacts to salmon from mines and other problematic activities around Babby Lake, more research and monitoring needs to be done. 
Donna McIntyre shares that view and is constantly working with other partners throughout the watershed to deepen our knowledge of what is happening under the surface of the water and how we can better protect the long-term health of our wild salmon populations in the Skeena and Babine watersheds. Um, you know, one one thing you mentioned earlier, too, when we were chatting uh, was about the, the need for monitoring of the fish that do come back to the lake um, and that more monitoring is needed. Maybe, maybe tell me a little bit of your thoughts on, you know, what would you like to see in terms of that monitoring, given that, you know, we are in some some challenging times with our, our salmon stocks? Well, there's a heck of a lot of monitoring to be done. Um, basically, you know, uh, there are some limno studies that have been done. We have a small contract through our um, CDP, which is the Community Economic Development Project that used to be a hatchery. But, I mean, that contract is so – or now it's a contribution agreement. It's very small. So the um, funds that Lake Bebe Nation has – we don't have enough. We need to look at water quality. We need to look at how we could reserve groundwater. We need to be able to um, do a lot more biosampling. We need to look at the chemistry of the water and, and see what is happening and be able to look also at, you know, right now I always look at Tazakwa Creek, which is uh, in, a creek in the Fort Babine area, where, you know, with, with um, a lot of disturbance, I'm finding that our spring freshets are just like a toilet bowl, right? So it's just like whoosh and done. Whereas when I first started, it would be slower. You could see the water, you know, getting murkier and gradually growing higher. And it, it kind of lasted, but now it's just like the flush. It flushes and it's gone. And, and that's not very good for fish. So there are tons of things that we need to monitor and do tons of biosampling, figure out what, what's happening with our fish, look at the lipids, look at the temperatures, um, you know, look at the areas of concern. Lake Bebe Nation has a huge concern around, um, you know, a lot of the logging and the mines in our area. And I think basically we just have to come up with a plan and figure out through the people, because it's the people that direct me on what their concerns are and then that puts me in the direction of what type of funding I have to look for. Traditional knowledge and Western science is integral to understanding the health of the Babine watershed. Indigenous nations like the Nedutan, Gitsan, and Lake Babine Nation, as well as other communities surrounding the watershed, rely on Babine salmon and have done so for multiple generations. On Smokehouse Island, near the confluence where the Babine River meets the lake, researchers have found ancient salmon bones more than 1,300 years old, suggesting indigenous peoples have been harvesting salmon from that one location since long before Europeans even landed on the west coast. Upriver, there is also a long-standing history of guided steelhead lodges that have been in operation for decades. Bringing in clients from all over the world, earning the reputation of steelhead paradise and the world-famous Rainbow Alley. Since the 1960s, rustic lodges like the Silver Hilton, Rainbow Alley Lodge, and the Babine Norlake Steelhead Camp have helped etch the mystique and wonder of the Babine River into fishing lure. Clients spend thousands of dollars to cast lines into one of the most pristine rivers in the world. They also help to protect the wilderness heritage and economic value of the Babine for future generations. Since the 1980s and then reinvigorated in 2001, the Babine River Foundation was formed to ensure the long-term sustainability of the Babine River and watershed. 
Now, the organization consists of the Silver Hilton and the Babby Norlake Steelhead Camp, which support the organization's work through financial levies charged to every visitor to the lodges. The foundation, along with the Babine Watershed Monitoring Trust, has collaborated with community groups and the provincial government to conduct environmental tests, research and monitoring over the last 25 years to ensure the health of the Babine ecosystem. Although 2021 was the worst steelhead return ever recorded in the Skeeter watershed and has inflicted major impacts on several of these lodges in the area, the Babine is still a very special place for fish and humans alike. Last year, I had the good fortune of visiting the Babby Norlicks Lodge and speaking with one of its owners and guides, Billy Labonte. He has been enamored by the beauty and remoteness of the Babine since he first laid eyes on it when he was 16 years old. In, in every fishing circle, doesn't matter if it's saltwater flats for permit or uh, guys fishing the Amazon, most of those, especially those destination type anglers, if you mention the name Babine, they know exactly what you're talking about. It's this this thing that their grandfathers read about in Field and Stream when Joe Brooks used to write stories back in the 60s of the, the famous Babine River, the infamous Babine River, and there's giant steelhead. But it's more than that for me. It's, uh, I mean, obviously the fishing's amazing. Um, people are amazing. But it's, f for being somewhat accessible um, without having to fly, so to speak, the wilderness values, especially the wilderness values 30 years ago when I first came up here. I mean, that first, I think the first day on the river, Bob Wickwire and I, we flew into the lodge and we were jet boating upriver to Triple Header. It's about seven miles away, I guess, 12 kilometers or something. And I think I counted 74 eagles going up and I coming from the Okanagan seeing an eagle on the Thompson River was like well there oh, wow look at that an eagle so it blew my mind and just the yeah just the the biodiversity the grizzly bears the eagles the salmon uh, during the fall you can go for a walk back in the bush and you're 300 yards up the mountain from the from the river and there's a pink salmon carcass and so you just know like there's 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 things crawling around in there that are still super wild. The bears, the, the, the few river otters, not many, but mink and marten and just the number. And so obviously that's going to lead into, well, obviously there's enough food for them. And so the salmon runs, especially 30 years ago, I mean, holy cow, the sockeye runs, uh, the pink salmon was just, it was incredible. You could, you could, like I said, you could be 500 yards back in the bush and you could smell the river you could smell the salmon you could uh everywhere you look there's bear sign um some of that has changed now there's there's definitely not the the, the famous stench of rotten salmon like there used to be there's still there's still some dead salmon around of course but there for years the, the banks were just lined it was just something you you came became used to you'd slip on one and and uh, it stink and everything else, but you just kind of got used to it. Didn't bother me. It bothered a few of the new guests once in a while. Um, but 30 years later, yeah, you don't see it like it was. The biodiversity is not the same. Uh, but that being said, not that long ago, maybe 2012, the year we bought Norlakes, the sockeye run was unbelievable. 
there's 1.2 or 1.5 million fish or something in there. And it was, you could tell because every time you just look at the river and within six feet of the bank, there's just a steady stream of fish going by. Uh, the last couple of years, you still see fish, but not like that. The, the, the run is definitely a lot smaller than it used to be. Um, but we're still seeing the bears. Again, maybe not in the crazy amount of numbers that we used to, which is a little easier on the nerves now sometimes, but uh, we still see them. Um, some pretty unique ones too. Actually, last year was that, I don't know if you saw that little cub. It's like brown, barnwood, gray, white, kind of just an amazing looking bear. Um, and that was a, a big attractant at the, at the weir. A lot of people up there photographing that bear, but lots of bears still along this corridor. The park has helped that, um, which uh, Pierce Clegg was instrumental in, in helping getting that uh, established. It's done a good job protecting the close stuff to the river. It's not the, it's not the largest park in the world. It's only a kilometer on each side. I wish it was five times that or more. Um, but it, it is some protection. And now I think it falls on, on, on us as steward and guardians of this river to protect the upstream ecosystem of this thing. And all the way down, all the way down the Babine, some of the old growth forest, um, it all leads downstream, right? So everyone is affected by, by what happens up here. That's a big daunting job, but it's good. We have a lot of, a lot of guests that come to this lodge and to the Silver Hilton Lodge, the people I've, I knew in the past and still know um, value this river beyond beyond anything even in their home country, some of them. Uh, I know some of our Japanese guests, this is like holy water for them. And they they donate large amounts of money to our Babian River Foundation, which uh, we put to good use for all kinds of different issues. Um, but it's a it's a big battle, yeah. It's uh, we have a lot of outside help too, um, which without that it'd be near impossible to uh, to battle some of the issues that we have to battle. The Babine is extremely unique in the fact that I guess like the Maurice is kind of the same boat. Where I mean, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a biologist, but I know things I've read and the in the brood stock like I've personally seen in the springtime um, helping out with the invisible migration and things like that. And I've seen up there with the steelhead are spawning. I've seen big 20 pound female steelhead spawning with three or four little 18 inch rainbows milking the eggs. And so the genetic diversity of the steelhead of the babine is extremely unique in that um, I've read that there's there's DNA samples from the Sutherland rainbow trout and the DNA is basically the same as the steelhead. So when those when those fish hatch, some of them go into the lake and some of them stay in the river and go to the ocean out of the same stock. Like it's so my point is when it comes to fear of of the runs and all that stuff it's so yeah of course it's scary and it, it, I, my belief is the last of the steelhead if it ever comes to that will be rivers like the babine with a massive lake feeding it and the maurice is kind of the same has a massive lake feeding it some of these other rivers that don't have that that uh diversity i guess or that that chance for these trout to go 
to turn an adjumus all of a sudden, which they do, which is crazy. Um, so I think the steelhead, it'll kind of be the last stronghold of, of steelhead, I, I believe. Um, I know there's a lot of outside influence, not just what happens right here in this watershed, but but all of it. I mean, from ocean ranching to to global warming to the blob to blah, they can just name them off A, B, C, D. There's, there's tons of other issues. Um, but from a business and a lifestyle and my family's, uh, like for my kids to, to do this after I'm done, I have, I have hope that, that it stays this way. Um, I guess a big part, the biggest part that actually scares me for the steelhead is more like glacial melt and we don't have the cooling of these rivers that we used to have. So that's going to affect the juvenile fish a lot more than than uh other issues but yeah i know it's <laughs> it's kind of depressing um but i hope that some of the stuff we do now some of these battles we fight make a difference in the long run um but we're not going anywhere so as Labonte mentioned, despite all the challenges and threats facing babine salmon and steelhead, there is still hope to ensure the survival of this precious and unique ecosystem. Donna McIntyre, too, shares Labonte's hope for the future of the babine watershed. The people of Lake Babine Nation have been stewards of this territory for multiple millennia, and there is nothing more important than the salmon and steelhead that swim these waters. We have been the stewards of the salmon since time immemorial. You know, there, there is evidence that the Lake Bebe Nation not um, only uh, were stewards of the salmon, but it was like, uh, you know, our currency where we were able to trade with other nations. Our, our fish has a little bit less oil by the time it comes to Lake Bebe Nation. And miners and the um, Hudson's Bay Company and, 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 you know, other nations traded with us. It is uh, basically, it, it's, it's our food staple. It is part of our culture within the potlatch system where we, you know, if you are an HC, uh, you are able to harvest that salmon and be able to distribute it, like with all the other things, like your dried berries and your dried moose meat and your jarred moose meat and whatnot. So culturally, it is very important to us. I, I know, um, you know, when within my family that uh, when people feel ill, and even myself to this day, if I feel ill, I need to eat some salmon or some smoked salmon or some beef, which is the dried um, jerky kind of um, salmon, and, and I crave moose meat. So it, it's just something that's inbred in us that makes us feel so much better. Amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling hungry just listening to you talk about all that. One other thing that I wanted to, to touch upon, Adana, was despite the fact that there are a lot of challenges, a lot of obstacles with Skeena salmon, with Babine salmon um, right now, you've been doing this quite a long time. As you mentioned, it's, it's part of your being. It's part of your community's being. Um, it's part of the culture. And there's a, a huge significance there for everybody, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, that live within the, the Skeena watershed. You know, doing this work, um, seeing what you've seen over the last number of years, 
what's your hope? Despite all these challenges that face Skeena salmon, what is your hope for the future for these creatures? My hope for the future is that we could um, work with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and be able to come up with a recovery plan for our wild stocks, because these are the uh, stocks that fed all of us. And now we're depending on the enhanced. And, you know, my personal belief is that, you know, you don't mess with Mother Nature, hey? So if we could come up with a recovery plan and be able to rebuild our wild stocks so that they are not extinct and that we just have to depend on the enhanced Fulton and Pinkett fish, that would be my dream. My other dream would be to be able to, um, you know, what we're, we are starting right now with our educational program through CDP. We're working on a virtual reality. We have salmon in the classroom. So educating other Lake Bebe Nation members because, you know, I'm no spring chicken. And, you know, I'm going to have to encourage our um, younger folks that are Lake Bebe Nation members and mentor them um, to be able to uh, go out and get a Bachelor of Science and, you know, balance, like I have, the teachings from my elders and, and using Western science. So that would be something that would be remarkable for me to see happen. You've been listening to Upstream, a Skeena Wild podcast. Over this first season, we'll speak with those on the ground working every day to ensure a future for Skeena salmon, the people behind the science that are increasing our awareness and understanding of one of the last intact salmon watersheds in the world, and what responsible development could look like. We'll also dive into what makes the Skeena such a significant and unique environment and how Indigenous nations and local communities are pulling out all the stops to ensure our way of life and salmon have a future here. If you want to hear more, check out SkeenaWild.org or subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And don't forget, tell your friends. Thanks for listening. <laughs>